And so I had these notes this first time I ever preached there at the vineyard. I'm just repeating that because I just started the podcast. Um, and like about a third of the way in, my notes all fell to the ground. And I was like, oh, crud, what am I going to do, right? So actually, from that point forward, everything got fluid and the sermon was great. I had the best time ever. And I think I just learned from that point way back when that um, my ADD, oh, hi, Ken, my ADD brain doesn't work that way. So I needed to, like, in other words, if I do notes, I get screwed up. And if you give me an outline, I get worse. And so I've always found that um, the anointing is in the bathroom, really. Um, because usually what happens is I go to the bathroom and Jesus, um, I say, Jesus, where should I start? And Jesus says, do you trust me? And I say, yes. And he'll say, good, I trust you. <laughs> And what that usually means is this, 99% of what we do is show up. All we ever have to really, really do is show up. And I believe that God just um, puts things in us. And if we will start, because I've found wherever I start, it always goes to the place it needs to go. Particularly since number one, we're in union with him. So remember, my new policy is if it's in me, it's Jesus. I'm not assuming that what's in me is the devil or my mind playing tricks on me. It's actually Jesus. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, bastards today. Um, well, you'll understand that when I say that. I like to just throw that word out there. Um, looking at the anointing of David, I think it's always interesting that um, when Samuel goes to anoint David as king, this whole uh, little exercise they go through, and all seven sons, you know, I'm going to shorten the version here, pass before him, and then the Lord, um, Jesse had all seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Jesse replied, there is still one left, the youngest. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send word and bring him here, because we will not sit down to eat this meal until he comes here. So Jesse sent word, brought him in, and now he had a, now he had a ruddy complexion with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. The Lord said to Samuel, um, arise and anoint them, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. <laughs> That's so restoring. <laughs> in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. <laughs> you would have to be on for this, because now I'm like half gone. Um... <laughs> David got in his seat, didn't he? <laughs> he sure did. Um, okay, I don't know whether this is true for, for true for true or not. I've tried to do a little research on this, but I've always heard that it was rumored, at least, that David was the bastard son of Jesse, and that's why he talks about, in sin did my mother conceive me, you know, like literal sin, like adultery. 
And you don't really see a mother attributed to him in the Bible that I have found yet. And if you find one, let me know. I'd like to know about that. And that would explain why he was so excluded because he was he brought so much shame on the family to Jesse. So it's like, you know, we can't have this bastard in here getting anointed for king. Like, and and basically, what did the Lord say to Samuel? He said, "Look, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at genealogies. You're looking at lineage. You're looking at outward appearance." you're looking at something that the world is looking at and I'm not looking at that at all I'm looking at the heart I always thought that it was funny they described all these seven sons that came first as being beautiful people you know kind of like like me when I let my hair down and um and yet David was ruddy in complexion and handsome it wasn't like he was like dog trash out there you know what I mean this guy was a good looking guy and um I always think it's interesting that he actually is, but there is there is a phenomenon, and we're talking about identity, so it's like there is a phenomenon in the land, and you know it's referred to by a lot of things, most popularly by orphanhood and uh, fatherlessness, but really, if you look at it, what it really is is the bastardization of our culture, that essentially what happens when we have that breakdown of the family we talked about this yesterday about how we've had a progressive bastardization of our culture as we go because as the things that god ordains right that he's that he's on like marriage um he's on um no ha not having sex before marriage you know like conceiving a child in the context of marriage and it's not we're not judging any of that we're just saying when the institutions that God ordains, you know, as we're presence-oriented creatures, created in his presence, right? And we're image bearers, right? Male and female, which means I talked yesterday how we have both capacities. And I talked a little bit about what those were. But essentially, because we are who we are by design, the only place that we ever find identity is coming back to the one who actually made us. Um, and so there's this bentness that we have into the creature where we try to find our identity. And we talked a little bit about how essentially when you're looking at sexual sin, you're looking at, um, who were they, or that wrong, the other right? Oh, right, right. <laughs> Reading my wife's comment. Um, but essentially, um, when you're looking at sexual sin, you're looking at symbolic stuff. You're looking at legitimate needs being met illegitimately, coming from a place of legitimate longings because there are deficits either in, and it doesn't matter where it comes from, mother, father, it's all about perception. My perceived, de uh, yeah, my perceived deficits are reality for me. It's not a matter of intentionality, whether a parent intended this to be an abandonment or a rejection or whatever. It's what the heart perceived. So when you're looking at sexual struggles being symbolic, they point to the need that was never met. And so what we've had in our culture is a proliferation of just rampant just sexuality and sexual sin. I mean, fornication, all of that is, is like rampant. And what happens as the out part of that, kind of the outcome, 
is we see our culture become increasingly more fragmented as we go. And so as that fragmentation goes, think about the soil parable. The shame in that soil just begins to multiply, right? It becomes the thing that's woven all through the soil. And we created a fatherless generation. I heard some stats the other night about, um, I'm going to get these wrong, but it's 80% of inner city, our city kids, are fatherless. And up to almost like 60% in the suburbs. Like it's a huge, huge number. And so I just want to say this prophetically. Jesus is breathing on bastards. He's breathing on those that have been rejected, those that have been outcast, those that have been put aside, those whose rightful inheritances have been wrecked, absolutely wrecked. So when you have a child outside of wedlock, what happens to that whole lineage that goes with that? And what happens to their history? Like, where does that come from? Like, you know, in other words, it wrecks this thing of, of honestly, of, of a bloodline of blessing that gets interrupted. It interrupts a whole slew of things that they would get from their own lineage. They would have more rights, right? Why does an adopted child have more rights or as many rights as the one that isn't? Because they've been brought into the lineage. They've been grafted in. They've been pulled into the place that they belong. They've been given a name and a family. And then when that happens, they become a legitimate heir and a legitimate son or a legitimate daughter. And so I think David epitomizes in many ways the heart of the father as he is ravenously reconciling all things and he's going after, he is breathing on those that have been outcasts. And I think that we're going to find ourselves in a heck of a lot of astonishment when Jesus raises up a new breed of revivalists who doesn't look anything like what we're used to. And he's calling a lot of these bastards, to use that word the way it's meant to be, he's calling them into their seats right now. And they will assume the seat of their anointing. They will step into the thing that God has for them. When, when we get, all right, think about the kingdom of heaven. If I lose a lineage, what's the likely thing for God to do? Connect me to my heavenly one, right? Because my DNA is heavenly. I was conceived in the heart of the father before I was ever conceived by a mother. And my DNA is heavenly. And, and if we don't recognize, I mean, I see it everywhere. DNA does not make a family. DNA does not make a bond stronger. There are a lot of families today that do not share the same DNA. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of strength in a lot of those families. So when we're looking at being restored, we're looking at going back to the blueprint. And the blueprint is the heavenly DNA. So Jesus puts us back into a family. He puts the orphan in a home. He puts all orphans in a home. And if that home isn't what it looked like growing up, it's going to be a home that has been cultivated in heaven for that child. That makes sense? In other words, Jesus always inhabits weakness. 
That's his thing. He loves the foolish. He loves the stupid. He loves the things that don't make sense. And if Jesus inhabits weakness, what is his heart for the orphan and the widow? What is his heart for a bastardized country, nation, world? If our weakness is that we haven't known Father, then we're going to be a generation that knows the Father's love and moves in Father's kingdom authority like no other generation that has existed before us. Because Jesus is going to take a generation that has been split and ravaged by pornography, um, by rampant sexuality, fluid sexuality, every kind of trans, everything that there is. And essentially, all of the goal in that is to destroy our capacity to love. And so the enemy's plan has been to render us incapable of loving, to render us incapable of getting into our seat of our anointing, right? He wants to unseat all of the orphans. His goal is to unseat us. And the thing is, Jesus, in the same way that Samuel went and got David, pulled him out of the fields over here, right? Jesus is going after and eagerly pursuing those that have been cast aside. He is going after with a vengeance those that have been bastardized, whether literal or not. Any place that we have been deemed illegitimate, he is seeking right now to make us legitimate. And, and the thing about all of this in sexual sin, look, there's no way we get reparented. There's no way to legitimatize our own status, <coughs> right? The only one that can do that is Jesus. Jesus is the one that can fill the gap, that legitimatizes me, that calls me a son, that grafts me in. The spirit of adoption is all over me. He is the adopter of every single person on the planet, and he reconciled them all to himself before, he, before they ever existed. The plan from heaven from the beginning was that all things would be restored, Every single one would be gathered and rescued, and he would leave the 99. That is like a metaphor. He will go after the one all day long, all day and all the next day. Watch what you see happen in Dawsonville. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one and every single baptism. Every single one. That is a biggest picture of Jesus going after the one that I've ever seen. And I'm telling you that right now, he is after the one. And he is relentlessly pursuing the one. Whether they're sitting in a church or whether they're sitting in a brothel, it doesn't matter. He's going after them. So he's going after the orphans and the widows in the church. And he's going for the orphans and the widows and the bastards in and outside the church. The Spirit of adoption is being loosed in this generation like no other time. And Jesus always chooses to glorify himself through our broken humanity and through our weakness. And he has a heart. We see it all through scripture. He has a heart for the orphan. And you can be an orphan 
physically, or you could be an orphan emotionally, you could be an orphan spiritually, <clears throat> but he's going after them. He is going after them. We are going to see a generation of bastards and orphans, metaphor, use it however you want, raised up as the manifest sons and daughters of God. Why? Because the one that has been rescued by Jesus, the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. It's why it's so much more challenging sometimes to turn a believer or a cultural Christian in my class. It's not because they're not believers per se. I don't know whether they are. Some of them are and some of them aren't. <clears throat> but the reason that makes it more challenging is the more, the more churched and religious we are, the harder sometimes they are to reach. But here's the good news. Jesus is going after both the Pharisee and the sinner. He goes after both. And so this revival is not confined to the four walls of a church. This revival will be the most significant revival to ever leave the walls of the church that we've seen in history. In fact, it will be a revival in the marketplaces. It'll be a, re it'll be a revival in the seven mountains, in every single place. It'll happen in classrooms and office buildings and underground and above ground. Think, there will be meetings and fires ablaze all over the place, and they won't be confined to any one church either. It isn't going to be about a church. It's going to be about a people and a bride, and, it, and Jesus is going after them, the 99, leaving them going after the one wherever they are. And I guarantee you, they're not all sitting in church. I'll tell you one of the biggest things that I want to do in my heart is I want the baptismal pool set up in Hopkins homes, right there where Rodney grew up. And I want to have a baptism for as an evangelistic tool for people to come and get in that water and give their life to Jesus and have an authentic encounter with him. Yes, it's here. This is the day. I talked about that the other day. If you're looking for another day, um, don't, because this is it. This is, I mean, Howard, my buddy, he talked to me a long time ago about victorious eschatology. And I have to agree that that's where I'm at. I don't care how dark it gets. The darker it gets, the brighter the light will shine. The more unusual the miracles will be, the more crazy, 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 unusual outpourings of the Holy Spirit we'll see. We'll see people walk. There will these many of them in this generation will literally be a sign and wonder. They will be a sign and wonder in how they function. People will look at them and go, "Wow, what's going on there?" And we're going to see things that we haven't seen. If we're doing the greater works and everything that Jesus did what was written in the book and not is ours, what will that look like in this generation? <clears throat> and I believe that he is raising up a generation of spiritual fathers and mothers who will sit in their seat and step into their anointing. My wife stepped in hers last night <laughs> as a mother. <laughs> that was so good. 
<laughs> she got right in hers last night. And so the other day, I think I'm going to end that with that today. I think we need to do that because part of what's going to, part of what needs to happen for us to do this thing where we reach a bastardized world and a fatherless generation is we got to get in our seat. So let's do this. This will be our activation for the end. If you're in a seat that you're sitting in right now and you're ready to step into the seat that was created for you, your seat of authority, your seat of anointing, the place where all of heaven and all of heaven's armies and the authority of heaven rest on you <laughs> so that when you declare a thing, it doesn't fall to the ground. <laughs> You guys are going to really get connected to your words. You really are. It's like, oh my gosh. When you declare it, it's going to happen right in front of you. But it only happens if you're in your seat. So I want you to get up. I want you to first ask the Holy Spirit what this seat is. I'm going to show you this other seat. See? And when I say to, we're going to get up and we're going to get in it as a prophetic act. And if you don't know the name of it, just get in it right now. Because Jesus is going to show you what it is. Some of us have been functioning in places our whole life that have been in part of what we are about. We've experienced a part of what I'm about get out here. A part of what I'm about get out here. And the context have been varied, but none of them have been wasted because they're all converging. And the whole of heaven and earth has been moving you through the journey of your life to get you to your seat. And I'm telling you that Jesus is more into getting you into the seat than you are. And if you're feeling that pressure of convergence right now, and you're feeling that thing that like, oh my God, I, I said this to Jamie, I said, I'm 55 years old and I'm still waiting to do what I was created for. Yeah, I've done a measure of it. I've been like Joseph. You plot me down, I do what I do. But I have yet to do the thing that I was really created for. And there is no regret in the journey because the journey has been the thing that got us into the place of believing that God was good again. The journey is the thing that purified us, that took the boulders out of the stream of our heart. The journey was the place that God took the refuse out of my heart, that all of my own bastardized garbage out of me, right? And in that journey, I began to know that he was good, period. So the journey is good and we bless the journey and we don't do regret. We don't look back. We recognize that the journey has a sovereign thread that is run all the way through it. And that thread is weaving the tapestry that puts me in my seat for such a time as this, for this day, this hour, now. So get up and get in your seat. And once you're in that new seat, Holy Spirit, I ask right now that everyone that's just done this little thing and that will do it, I want you to tell them who they are. Tell them who they are, no matter how contrary it is to what they've been, no matter how much of it they've known their whole life and not functioned in, 
I don't care where they've been. When they get in that seat, Jesus, I'm, we are releasing a place of seatedness that they will not be unseated in Jesus' name ever again. That when they step into their seat, they will step into it once until the end. And this will be the seat that they maintain until the end. And so, Jesus, that's what we declare and proclaim over them. We say it over our region. Everyone is getting in their seat right now. And all of heaven and earth, we declare, is moving in a convergence of journey and history to move the mothers and the fathers and the new breed of revivalist, young and old, at every age, and every bastardized person who has been considered their whole life illegitimate is now legitimate in Jesus' name because they sit in the seat of authority that has all of heaven's backing. And they sit in the seat that the book of life had inscribed a long time ago. And from this place, we declare they are liberated as a manifest son and daughter of God to go forth and do great exploits on the planet in Jesus' name. Bless you guys. Sorry it's a little over the map. I don't think I took the Adderall yet, but I will. But maybe I'll go back in the pool and get free. Who knows? Could be. All right. See you tomorrow. <laughs> <coughs>